0: Listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode number 182. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you, as always, for your time and your attention today. If you are new to the show, a new listener, thank you for joining us. And I hope that this is both fruitful and challenging for you. As I always say, whether you agree or disagree with me, I just hope to get you to think more deeply about your presuppositions, your prejudices, and maybe things that you take for granted. So that being said, we will continue today in Miyamoto Musashi's book, The Book of Five Rings, as translated by Stephen F. Kaufman, The Definitive Interpretation, of Miyamoto Musashi's classic book of strategy. Today, I wanted to read from the Book of Earth, comparing the way of the craftsman to the strategy of a warrior. So let's just dive right in. This is phenomenal stuff. It is important to understand what the goal of an art is. By art, what we mean is, at least in the Western translation of this, the Western definition, the word art comes from the word techné in the Greek, meaning a craft, something that is made with the hands in particular. So what we do with our hands in particular in this case may seem on the surface as a rudimentary exercise. What are you doing with your hands? What Art are you crafting, creating with your hands? What materials are you using? And yet, that does not necessarily equate to understanding what the goal of an art is. Because doing something and the goal of doing something are two different things. It's a question, like I discussed in the last episode when we start, when we make our introduction, no matter what our undertaking, have we asked ourselves, why are we doing this? Is this something that I have a passion for, a love for? Do I accept the consequences that come with pursuing my passion? Because if we're not clear at the introduction, if we do not have definition, determination, then as we go, we may lose our motivation. We may question why we started in the first place, especially when difficulty and challenges and obstacles block our way. If we are not clear from the start as to why we are engaging in this pursuit, why are we doing it? And again, when trouble comes, When our plans are scuttled, will we throw up our hands and quit because we never really had a clear purpose in the first place? Or will we modify and adapt? Maybe take a step back, maybe two, maybe pause and ask ourselves, do I have a clearly defined direction? Do I know why I'm going in this direction? Is this worth fighting against? Should I move through it around it, over it, under it? Do I need to ask for help in moving it? As long as we start off from the introduction with a why, understanding passion, self-discipline, that it will be lonely at times, there will be challenges, we will grow afraid at times, then as we go, we can adapt. We can change our strategy. We can modify We can even change directions if necessary. Likewise, then, what is the goal of an art? Take something as simple as drawing. I sit down with a pad of paper and a pencil or a pen and I start to sketch. What am I drawing? Puppies, let's say I'm drawing puppies or flowers or whatever. I know what I'm drawing. I know how to draw. I have the materials, the raw materials, the component parts that are necessary for me to draw. But why? Why am I drawing? What is the goal of my art? Is it simply to set aside a time to stop and slow down and achieve a kind of flow state through drawing? Is it to draw something that I plan to sell as a product? Is it a gift for someone else? Why am I drawing? What's the goal? And so Musashi says at the very onset, it is important to understand what the goal of an art is. Once that is understood, it is easy to pursue the spirit of it, its essence, the thing that makes it what it is. Why do I draw? because I love to draw. Why? It allows me to engage and exercise my imagination and my curiosity. And that is something that has always made me happy and put me in a state of bliss, a kind of childlike state of play where I can look at the world, which I so often take for granted as being ordinary, mundane, even boring and trite maybe even barren. But by engaging my imagination, I can look at a tree, for example, especially now in the midst of winter. It's void of leaves. It produces no fruit. It is simply the skeleton of the thing. And yet it is still alive, even though it is dormant. And so I look at that tree and I let my mind wander. Not just to lower things, not to just the most basic interface with reality, that that's a tree. I lift my mind to higher things. I lift my curiosity and my imagination and I ask, what is the meaning of that tree? What higher truth, what higher reality is that tree expressing to me right now as I observe it? And as a Christian, what I see is a symbol a higher truth, that that tree is pointing me back to the tree of life at the top of the mountain in the Garden of Eden. And it points me then to the tree of life, which is located at Calvary, the tree on which Jesus was crucified. Because as he says in John's gospel, I am the life. I am the light of the world. No man may come to the Father except through me. So that life now points me back to the original tree and that, biblically speaking, all trees point us to the tree of life in the garden. And that tree of life points us forward to Jesus and helps us then to understand more deeply and to interface with reality at a much higher level. One could even say the highest level that we are capable of engaging with. But it also points me to the last day where the tree of life where Jesus is seated on his throne and the river of life that flows out from under his throne is the new heaven and the new earth. And the new heaven and the new earth at the last day are remarkably similar to the heaven and the earth of the first day because Revelation, the book of Revelation, no S, is simply a recapitulation, a recreation of the original tree, and the original garden, and the original mountain, and the original rivers. That is what happens when you look up, instead of always looking down. Instead of focusing all of your attention on lower things, temporary things, earthly things, we look up and we focus on higher things, on the spiritual, on the heavenly. And rather than ask, what is this tree composed of? What is it made of? And what is its function? What does it do? Which are the lowest level of engagement with reality. We ask, what does this tree mean? What higher truth, what higher reality does this tree express to us? Because the ancients understood that earth, that matter, physical, raw matter, it holds up the heavenly, the spiritual, And that the heavenly and the spiritual, the universe, covers the earthly. And there then is a merging, an overlap between the higher things and the lower things, between heaven and earth. And as a Christian then, that merger reaches its conclusion, its summary, in Jesus, who is both man and God, according to the Christian confession. So in the beginning, God walked in the garden. That is the physical expression of God's Word, who we then later confess to be Jesus. At the last day, he comes on clouds to judge both the living and the dead, with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. That is God. The Word of God merged with the physical, with the earthly, that we then say is Jesus. For us as Christians, that is our confession, that is We don't just look at lower things, earthly things, but rather ask, what does this earthly thing mean? Why was it created? And therefore, what higher truth, what higher reality is it expressing to us? And so when you let your imagination run in that way, a tree is not just a tree. It is an expression, a physical manifestation, an earthly presence of something greater and higher than just the component pieces that make up a tree. That's the spirit that Musashi is pointing out to us. And so he continues, to study carpentry, you study the correlation of materials. And so I can compare the way, capital W, the way of the warrior to the way of the craftsman. That is the spirit of the art. Carpentry is the art material is what the artist uses to compose his masterpiece, but it is the way, capital W, that is the spirit of the art of the artist. So to study the sword, you must study war, weapons, and men. To study craftsmanship, you study the project, the tools, and men. You will succeed or fail in either one depending on your attitude towards the quote-unquote spirit of the thing. It's not enough then, what he says. It's not enough to simply study war from a technical, academic, pedantic standpoint. Neither is it just enough to study the alchemy of a sword and the metal that it is composed of. It is not enough to study men and their behavior so that you can predict how they will behave. You must go deeper. You must interface with a higher reality. Why do we fight? Why do we make war? What do our weapons mean to us? What do they communicate to us, to the enemy? What are men? How do they think? What does their heart direct them to do in different circumstances? How can I motivate and raise the morale of my men? How can I lower it? How can I destroy the morale of my enemy's soldiers? These are not questions that can be answered by any book. Because no book can communicate fully the spirit of men or of weapons or of war. For example, to make it less academic, if I say that war is violence, war is bloody, war is hell, as the cliche goes, all of those can be proven to be true by personal experience. And yet others may experience war completely differently. War is not hell, it is glorious. War is a beautiful violence, It is a gracious conflict, and men live for war. Some live for it. They are called warlords. But what is it about individual, particular men that compels them to fall in love with something that most of us avoid at all costs? You can't answer that question by reading a textbook. You have to experience it. You have to sit with them. You have to listen and learn from them. You have to engage with them in combat. Then you will begin to understand the spirit of the man, the thing that drives them, that motivates them, their emotional state, their mental state. And so, yes, I can write a book about my own experiences with whatever art is my area of expertise. And I can explain to you in detail what it feels like, what I was thinking at the time, how I do it and why. But if you attempt to repeat that in a kind of, again, academic pedantic way in real time, you will fail. Because as Musashi says in the beginning, I did not go to a school. I did not learn from any teacher. Instead, I went out and I learned my craft in the field by simply dueling and fighting with a sword, where if I was successful, I ate. And if I failed, the cost was my life. And that is a strong motivator and it is a powerful teacher. So even reading this book, in a sense, Musashi is telling us, when you're done with this book, you have to go out and live. You have to go out into the world and experience war, weapons, and men. Or if you're a carpenter, at some point you have to leave the academy. You have to go out and you have to build something with your own hands. You have to engage with other craftsmen, both competitively and as brothers and sisters in arms. You can't just sit here and read this book about carpentry or watch videos on YouTube and then become a master carpenter. At some point, you're going to have to find out what the spirit of the art is if you ever hope to be a master of it. So then he says, there can be no let-up to your study, regardless of the path you choose. Even though you may have mastered a particular level, you must search constantly, for still more understanding of your chosen art. Again, this is true for me anyways. It's true from experience. I was thinking about this last night when I got home from the gym. I teach on Tuesday nights, Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. And I have always had a proclivity for teaching and I've always had the ability to teach ever since I was a little boy. But when I decided to start, well, actually thinking about teaching and started to inquire about what would be necessary for me to help out with teaching jiu-jitsu classes, for example, there were certain criteria, experience, belt level, so on and so forth. Same thing when my coach said, I'd like you to teach Muay Thai classes. I said, but I've never had a Muay Thai fight. And he said to me, that's okay. Some of the best Muay Thai teachers have never fought. And that motivated me to go out and to learn and to study and to sit with masters of Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu and to learn from them, attend their seminars, read their books, watch their videos. But at some point, I still had to go and apply the technique in real time so that when I started to teach, I wasn't good at it, but I was a teacher. And it took me a second to suss out, just because you're good at teaching one thing, doesn't mean then that you're going to immediately be good at teaching something else. Teaching jiu is not the same as teaching Old Testament Hebrew. Teaching Muay Thai is not the same thing as teaching guitar. Teaching someone how to bake is not the same as teaching someone how to garden. Just because you have the ability to teach the raw material within you to teach, you still have to go and learn your craft, your art. And you have to do it in real time, in the field, so to speak, in the workshop, the lab of the world. You have to have those experiences because you have to ultimately fail in order to learn, to fail upwards, in order to be educated in such a way that you are constantly improving, as he says. Now, if I failed in the way that Musashi describes in his book, I wouldn't be talking to you today because, of course, if you fail catastrophically, you die. And he has something to say about, you know, combat as a sport, and we'll get to that probably in, in what comes later. But you still have to apply your art. You have to go out and you have to figure out for yourself at some point. What is the spirit of my art? Because not all carpenters are the same, even though they may use the same tools, the same materials. They may even be working from the same plans and schematics and drafts from the same architect. But each carpenter will apply his hand to his craft just a little bit differently than everyone else. That's the spirit of the art. And in order to learn that, you have to simply go out and do it. And like I said, fail upwards. So Musashi continues Then, If there is no discipline, how can there be a true realization of an ideal? How can a man be trusted to perform in society if he does not understand what society needs? To act in harmony with the environment of where you are You must understand the need for certain rules. If you do not, then you will not be able to control others. If you cannot control others, then how can you expect to attain perfection in your own ideal? It is essential for the leader to know the rules of the game which rules work, which rules do not work, which rules can be changed to suit a particular need, which rules, when changed, will create additional problems, and which will not. Again, this goes back to making a good start, knowing the why, understanding the spirit of the thing, the passion of the thing. You answer these questions for yourself at the outset so that you can continue to ask yourself these questions throughout. You must know the rules of the game. Which rules work? Which rules don't? Which can be changed to suit a particular need? Which, when changed, create more problems and which don't? We call this troubleshooting. Again, going back to the gym last night, teaching introduction to jiu we are teaching the defense to a particular submission called the dars choke. There's a way to apply the dars choke correctly and, of course, incorrectly. And in teaching the defense, you are teaching the student this is how it's done correctly and cannot be defended against. But these are steps to take in your training, to recognize this person, my sparring partner, is attempting to apply a darce choke to me. Now, here are the rules for defending myself against this choke. And as you teach them, you then say, okay, team up with your partner, practice, we'll walk around. Then you walk around and you provide correction, you demonstrate physically okay, this is where you're off a little bit here or you're getting this backwards. Then, depending on their level of comfort with the technique, you add something, maybe some small detail. Try this instead. Or when they do this and it falls apart, you want to transition to this. Or consider when you get a hold of the arm, don't let it go until you've achieved a dominant position. And oh, by the way, Here's one example of a dominant position. But you always conclude at some point with the provision, the proviso, but when you're sparring with someone who is inexperienced, you can expect X. When you spar with someone who is experienced, you can expect Y. So I said to one of the new students, what you're doing right now to escape from bottom mount Someone's sitting on your stomach, on your chest. What you're doing now works in an MMA fight, but not within the rules of pure jiu-jitsu. In an MMA fight, yes, do that. It prevents you from getting punched in the face. In a jujitsu jitsu fight, I'm just going to climb up your torso and submit you with an armbar, or an Americano or a mounted triangle. And being a new student, he was confused. He had watched a video yesterday afternoon sometime, and in the video, the technique worked against top mount. But I know which video he watched. I've watched them myself. I've taught them. And I explained to him, yes, in the video, they are teaching this technique for self-defense. In the gym, on the mats at a tournament, you do not have to worry about elbows and fists or headbutts you're worried about submissions. So yes, if you want to practice this particular technique, great, go for it. But understand, the rules that work for this technique in a self-defense situation or an MMA fight are not the rules that work in a jujitsu jitsu competition or on the mats. So when you change the rules, they're going to create additional problems for you in this setting. So just be aware of that. And of course, being a new student, he ignored me. And then we got to sparring and he got submitted several times attempting to use the technique I told him wouldn't work. And he looked at me and I smiled at him and I winked and he smiled back and we went on with life because that's not the first time that's happened to me. So he knows the technique and I as a teacher taught him from my experience of failing, primarily, which technique works depending on the circumstances, which rules work depending on the circumstances. But he still had to do it for himself and learn in real time, okay, professor was correct. This works over here, but it doesn't work over there. Great. Now that he's learned from it, he's better for it. And so craftsman, Musashi writes, are familiar with the quality of the materials that they use in their work. A man must not assume that another man's uniform or armament is an indication of his strength. Many warriors have always relied on the quote-unquote look of their armor to intimidate the enemy. Do not assume that what appears to be finely crafted goods will hold up under use. The truth is that strength lies in the interior of the warrior, in his heart, his mind, and his spirit. The same applies to weapons. An excellently crafted weapon is incapable of acting of its own accord. It must be wielded The extent to which a weapon is well crafted is based solely on the ability of the craftsman. The strengths and weaknesses of the materials used must be understood by the craftsman. A merchant, on the other hand, must rely solely on his ability to manipulate others into believing that his goods are the best. That is the way of the merchant. The farmer knows when his produce is good and when it is inferior. That is the way of the farmer. The warrior knows in his heart when he is correct in action and when he is issuing false bravado. All men are the same except for their belief in their own selves, regardless of what others may think of them that is so critical. So critical. How often do we judge based on appearances? Seven out of 10, eight, nine out of 10 times, we judge people based on appearances. If we think of this on an emotional level, how often do we judge a person's character based on how friendly or how aloof they are when we first meet them or greet them? How often do we make it all about ourselves and our perception of them? I have met people who were aloof, cold, unwelcoming, uninviting toward me. And I thought to myself, how disrespectful this person is. How standoffish. What's their problem? What did I do? Do I have a booger on my face? Did I not approach them in the right manner with the correct attitude? Should I have smiled? What did I do that this person is behaving this way? Versus what does this person's armor tell me about this man or woman right now? Perhaps this has nothing to do with me. Perhaps this person has had a bad day or a bad hour. Perhaps they're having a bad stretch And they're not in the mood to meet new people. They don't want to make a new friend right now because they're very involved in their own thoughts and feelings about something that I know nothing about. Maybe this doesn't have anything to do with me at all. Or when a dog barks and creates a ruckus. It's true. That dog could be trying to attack me to protect its yard or its owners, Or it could be barking because it's afraid and it is trying to scare me off with a show of force. It's trying to puff itself up to say, I'm a threat. You don't want any part of this. Likewise, when someone wears an actual suit of armor, maybe it's a power suit. Maybe they dress a certain way in the gym. Maybe they carry themselves a certain way on the street. They are dressed in armor mental, emotional, physical armor. What is that communicating to us? What if, like Musashi, we do not judge based on the look of their armor, which is usually intended to intimidate others? Rather, what if we judge the armor for what it is? It's just the raw materials that this person has chosen to project a certain look onto the world so that people will see them a particular way. For example, practically speaking, I have a a beanie, a stocking cap. I bought it from Cowboy Cerrone's website. It's red, white, and blue, and it says BMF on it, right? Now that projects a certain attitude out onto the world. When you see me coming, six foot two, 200 pounds, wearing a Carhartt jacket and a BMF red, white, and blue beanie, That makes a statement, right? Versus wearing a hat that says, I give free hugs. That's a different kind of armor, right? So if I wear a BMF hat around town in public and people step to me and challenge me, I shouldn't be shocked that they're challenging me. I've advertised to the world that I'm a bad motherfucker. Likewise, then, if I don't want that image projected out onto the world, don't wear the hat. Don't put that armor on before you walk out of the house. Because you may see it as kind of tongue-in-cheek, kind of ironic, but yet kind of true. Others may not. And so don't dress for the part, right? Don't dress for success if you don't want to accept the consequences of what your armor invites. That being said, I love that hat, especially when I'm driving on the highway and people look over and stare at me (laughs) because I'm a brat and I'm a a contrarian by nature and it's just funny to me. But it is in a sense then too, speaking um, about the interior part that Musashi addresses, it is also a reminder to me, this is who you've become. You have... Deliberately and purposely train yourself for over eight years so that you can walk in public without fear of other men. And this hat, then, this armor that you put on, is saying to other men, I don't fear you. You should fear me. That's the interior, that's the spirit of something as simple as a hat. But again, ask the question what does it mean? what higher truth is it expressing? I have build caps, snapbacks, with the Jerusalem cross on the hat, embroidered on the hat. So when I wear that hat, I'm advertising to the world that I'm a Christian. There's a cross on my hat, but it's a particular cross, the Jerusalem cross, which carries particular meaning for me. You may just see, oh, that's a cross, and then it's outlined by other crosses. So you say to yourself, oh, he must be a Christian. But for me, it carries a much deeper meaning based on the original meaning behind the Jerusalem cross. And so again, when I wear that hat, that armor, I am projecting a different image, a different version of myself out onto the world. And maybe it is not the same as the BMF hat. It's definitely not. But it is still saying to others, this is my armor. And when I wear it, this is what I want you to get from it. This is who I want you to see me as. So dress the part is what Musashi's saying. Don't just dress up for show to make a showing, a uh, theatrical performative show of, well, this is my strength because look at my armor. Okay. But is it gilded armor? Is it armor that was actually designed and made for combat? Or is it for parades? Is it for aristocrats to don when they want to show the public, the peasants, that they are the defender of the realm, the defender of the faith? So do not assume that because their armor is impressive, maybe even frightening to you, that the person inside that armor is what their armor is projecting out onto the world. People that are competent don't have to make a show of their competency. And I think this is something, just speaking for myself, that I always struggle against. Wanting to be acknowledged and recognized, wanting to have the spotlight on me. Rather than saying, why can't I just go about my work quietly? Why can I be satisfied knowing that people benefit from my work without me ever having any acknowledgement from them? No recognition. Is it not enough to know that I have helped people? Period. Is that not enough? Because that says a lot then about a person's character, it says a lot about their intent their motivation, their purpose, as Musashi says. It says a lot about the art. If the purpose of art is art, then why do you care about the product? But if you do art to sell it, then you should focus primarily on the product. You're selling your art. You're making it into a consumable product. So no matter what you do in life, whether in your relationships, whether at work, at school, in the gym, the stranger, at the checkout counter, the cashier. Is it enough to apply your art, even if it is the art of hospitality or kindness, to apply your art for the sake of the art without any expectation of remuneration, because it's not a product, it's just art. The Russian director, Andrei Tarkovsky, who many people in the West don't know about, but all of your favorite famous Western directors of movies will all claim Tarkovsky is an influence. Highly influential director. I think his work is beautiful. Many people dislike it because in interviews, Tarkovsky said, There are times in the movie when I don't know what's happening. I have a script. It has three acts. It has a narrative structure to it. But there are simply times during the filming of a movie when I tell the cinematographer, I lean over and I whisper in his ear, just let the camera go because we're making art. And the art, I am the instrument of that spirit. And whatever art comes out of me, whatever art comes out of the actors, whatever art comes out of the earth and the environment around the actors, there is art being made. And in this moment, we can engage and interface with the spirit of the art. Because once this is finished filming and we have edited it and we have put it in the can and sent that film out, It's no longer art. It's a product because it's being consumed. It's being paid for. It's being judged by the Soviet regime for quality and content. So if we can do art simply for the sake of art, without any expectation that this is going to be bought and paid for by others, consumed and judged by others, if we can be kind and just walk away from that cashier, and not give a second thought, not look back for a moment to see whether they truly appreciate what we just did for them. Then we're doing the art in its purest form. We're doing art for art's sake. Whether, again, that be the art of kindness, the art of forgiveness, the art of carpentry, the art of swordsmanship, the art of podcasting, the art of cooking, whatever it may be, whatever the art, the craft, whatever it is you're making. Do you do it for its own sake? Because like I said, it takes you back and helps you retain that childlike sense of wonder and curiosity and imagination. That seriousness of a child at play. Or are you doing it to sell it? And I don't think, again, there's nothing wrong. I don't think we need to be pejorative about cooking to sell food. That's a needful thing. We should never feel bad if we raise a garden and then sell our produce. There are people willing to pay for it. And there are people that need produce. And they're paying for your time and your energy and your craft, your craftsmanship. Neither is negative in and of themselves But we then have to ask, again, the spirit of the thing. Am I doing this because I'm greedy for money and I'm going to exploit my neighbors in this way? That's one way to be a craftsman. Are you doing it to serve your neighbor? And you do it out of charity, out of kindness. That's another art, another way of art. Oops, excuse me, hit my own microphone. Or you simply do it because you love to do it. I have two apple trees right now. Two pear trees, two apple trees. I have a lot of doubles, right? I don't know. It's just, one, it's biblical. I know that. But also the man that I get my trees from, he just gives me two at a time. So if he sees the higher meaning in that, I don't know. I've never asked. But they show up two by two. So I have two cherry trees as well. But I have these two apple trees. And this last summer, it was extremely dry in Minnesota. So we had... A lot of hornets, so many more than normal. And the hornets loved my apple trees. So we made an agreement, I and my hornets, they were given one tree and I was given the other tree. <laughs> I don't know how that worked out that way. It's God's grace, whatever. But they primarily stayed to the one apple tree and avoided the, the one next to it. And yet, both trees produced an abundance of apples, even though I was told that they're still young, they're not fully mature yet, they're probably not going to produce for another year or two. Well, they produced in abundance. I had apples falling off the trees. We couldn't keep up. Neither could the hornets, though. So there was more than enough for both of us. And then after we picked the apples, we ended up giving them away to people because we had too many. So there was enough to go around. It was enough for myself, for my wife, for our family, that we had these apple trees. We were simply in awe and wonder at the growth and the production of the apple tree and its fruit. And we were simply grateful for that. And we reveled in that. We worshiped God because of it. And yes, it's annoying when you go to pick apples that you have to watch your feet if you're barefoot because you might step on an apple full of hornets and you have to look at the apple before you pick it because you might grab a apple full of hornets, but it's their apple tree too. That's a part of the art of growing an apple tree is birds and bugs and other things also will take their fair share. We call it rent, but that's nature, that's creation. If you don't want hornets, don't raise apple trees. I learned that last summer. And there's an art to that. Neither good nor bad, simply the art. So then you ask the spirit of the thing, the higher meaning. Why do you want to raise apple trees? Well, we want one, our own apples, but also two, I just think it's beautiful and wonderful to be able to see something grow like that and to be there for that whole gestation period of growth and production and harvest and going dormant and coming back the following year. I think it's amazing. And I think it connects us more closely to the rhythm of creation, to the rhythm of nature, and not just the clock and the calendar, which I think is an artificial form of time that we created. And because it's artificial, it throws us off and we become slaves to the clock and the calendar rather than simply saying, well, it's winter now. So we don't harvest apples in the winter. We harvest them in the fall. Did we harvest enough for the winter? Did God provide enough apples for us to provide for the winter months? Or next year, do we need to plant more apple trees? Do our neighbors have enough apples for the winter? Do we have an abundance? Do we have an excess of apples? All of this is the spirit of the art. All of this is also then judging the armor that the person wears when they go about their lives. And maybe in this instance, when you show charity and kindness to others, you're taking off the armor and you're saying to them, I'm not a threat. I'm not a challenge. I'm not here to fight. I'm here to give. So maybe to conclude this thought, before we move on, it's important also to recognize there's a time to put your sword up on the wall, over the fireplace, and there's a time to take it down. There's a time to take off your armor and hang it up in the corner, and there's a time to put it back on. If you're always walking around in your armor, people are going to think that you want to get in a fight which is going to scare off a lot of people and invite conflict with others. Likewise, if you never put on your armor, there are going to be a lot of people who say he's a person of peace. She's a person of peace. She's not a threat. We like that about her. She's welcoming. She's inviting. She's easy to talk to. But then there's going to be other people who look at you and say, you never wear any armor. You're vulnerable. You're weak. I can exploit that. I can take advantage of you. So we need to recognize that as Musashi notes, this is a constant discipline, a constant study because we need to learn when it's time to fight and when it's time not to fight. When it's time to be hospitable and inviting and when it's time to say to people, you need to step back. I am not available for that. That is a part of the art. It's a part of the life that you are crafting for yourself. So maybe I treat one person standoffish. I don't know you. I don't know if you're a threat or not. I didn't give you permission to come in my fence line. Get out. Introduce yourself. Ask me for permission to come in. Otherwise, I will treat you as a threat. I am going to protect my family from you because I don't know you. But on the other hand, if you come through the gate and I do know you, I will be open and inviting and say, yeah, come back, you know, come on in. Don't just stand at the gate and wait for me to invite you. You're practically family. There's a time to wear the armor. There's a time to take it off. There's a time to fight and there's a time to make peace. That's the art. That's the spirit of developing and crafting our arts. But the strength, as he says, lies in the interior not in how we dress or how we present ourselves. I think if we can take some implication from this, how you dress is a expression, a revelation, an image or a picture, a snapshot, let's say, of the interior workings of your mind and your heart and your soul. Like I said, if I wear a hat that says BMF on it and it's red, white, and blue, I'm saying something. And I may take that as a kind of tongue-in-cheek, humorous image of a tough guy. But there are others who may take that as a challenge. So I need to be aware of that. And I need to be conscious of the fact that how I present myself to others is not within my control at a certain point. How they take it, how they interpret that, is not entirely within my control. So I need to not only, as he said earlier... Know about the psychology of men, but I also need to understand their heart and what motivates them. And so the supervisor on a construction job must assign tasks to his men according to their known abilities. Who is good at what specific aspect of the project? Who can lay floors? Who can tile the roof? connect the drainage system. Should this not also be true for warriors? The warrior leader must understand himself before he can understand the realities of commanding others to do his bidding, especially when teaching is involved. Only when each soldier has been observed can the commander know which warrior will be able to perform a specific act Otherwise, only chaos can result. Going back to the example of teaching, I like to get to know each one of my students individually so that I don't treat them all the same. Some students I can joke around with. I can be more critical with them because they want that from me and we have a relationship where I can be critical and joke with them, even tease them. There are others, though, that are very sensitive and I cannot joke with them because they're very serious, they're very focused, and they want a very serious and focused teacher. So when I go from one pair of students to the next pair, I have to I have to ask myself, does this person like praise more than criticism? Does this person want me to be more harsh with them than others? You can't apply the rules of teaching equally to each student. But The overarching narrative is, this is the technique that I'm teaching tonight, and you will do it to the best of your ability, and I am here to help you accomplish that. If you don't like what I teach, or you don't like how I teach, either talk to me, or find a different teacher or a different gym. And so within that, again, big R rules and little r rules. And I, as your teacher, will ask the question, Which rules in particular need to be changed and which need to stay the same? Which rules will create additional problems for myself or the student or both and which will not? That's the art of teaching. When you first start teaching, you're just afraid that people are gonna find out that you're a fraud. You're afraid they're going to ask you a question that you can't answer and you're going to be exposed in public. It's imposter syndrome. But as you gain experience, and again, fail upward, you learn, one, to admit your mistakes. Two, you learn to take those questions that you can't answer or those problems that you can't solve in the moment, and you go and you solve them. You figure it out. You learn. You seek out the advice and the wisdom of your betters. And so to the students that studied with me four years ago, I'm sorry. You got a lesser version of the teacher that I am today. And to the students that study with me today, I'm sorry. You get a less excitable version of the teacher I was when I started because time and experience and failure has seasoned me and it has sharpened me in some ways and dulled me in others. Because of course, when you pursue your art there are things that you have to let go of that are not productive. They're problematic. And there are other things that at first seem problematic, but then you use those as tools to strengthen yourself. And they become not weaknesses anymore, but virtues. And I think this is important because you may learn from a teacher at one point in your life and think, what a terrible teacher. We just, we just did not sync up with each other. But then you meet them further on down the road and suddenly you're learning. They're different, you're different, something is different. Well, yes, everything is different. You are more ready to learn in a different way than you were before and they hopefully are a better teacher. We'll probably get to this in the next episode, The Way of Strategy, where he talks about the difference between a teacher and a master teacher and it goes back to this whole matter of the spirit now you can look at this with the big s spiritual meaning like holy spirit spirit of god spirit of divinity or in small s spiritual way meaning the soul the thing that makes you you the ability of a good teacher to talk to you in such a way that they not only teach you the technique the craft But they can explain to you the why of it and the essence of it. You want to do this because it sets up these options. You don't want to do this because if you haven't thought about it, there is this. And by doing X instead of Y, you get the person to start thinking about what you're doing and not what they're doing. And now they're fighting your fight rather than fighting their fight. And that means you're winning. This is very important when you teach combat martial arts. I can teach you the fundamentals of technique and we can drill them class after class after class and you will become in time a master of technique. But I have not taught you the spirit of the technique, the spirit of the art, such as you know the same patterns that I know in striking. The technique is the big R rule. We both learn jab, cross, switch kick. Cross, hook, rear kick. You know it, I know it. So when I throw cross, hook, rear kick twice, your brain calculates that the next time I throw cross, hook, I'm going to throw a kick and it's going to be a rear kick. So what I'm going to do now in practice is say cross, hook, switch kick. Why do we do this? to mix up our patterns. If we mix up our patterns, the person that we're sparring or fighting against who trains the same patterns that we do will now become confused. Is he going to throw a straight, then a hook, then a rear kick? Or is he going to throw a straight, then a hook, then a switch kick? Well, now they're thinking about what you're doing rather than what they need to do, which means now you're ahead of them because they're chasing, they're trying to catch up with you. That's where you want to be in any fight, ahead of your opponent. That's not something you can just teach by saying, I want you to perfect the straight right, the hook left, and then a rear right kick. The raw materials of the technique can be mastered. But knowing what's in a man's mind or heart in the midst of a fight, that's the philosophy side of it. That's the spiritual side of it. You can't learn that from hitting pads or hitting the heavy bag. You have to actually spar. You actually have to fight. That's when you learn about men's hearts. That's when you learn that fighting isn't about getting the tap or getting the judge's decision. It's about leaving the fight and you're in their head, rent-free, for the rest of their lives. Because you didn't just physically dominate them, but spiritually you dominated them. So now instead of saying, I want to fight that person again, I want to get my revenge. Instead, when they see you on the card, they say, thank God I'm not fighting that guy because you have taken their heart captive and they're afraid of you. They don't want any part of that. And to me at that, at this point in my training, I don't care about tapping people when I roll with them. I want to apply my art in such a way that when they make eye contact with me, they say, yeah, not tonight. And I don't mean that in a mean way or a malicious way. I don't mean all he's going to do is beat me up for five minutes. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is when we train together and he applies his art and I apply my art, when we finish after five minutes, I am physically exhausted, but I'm also mentally and emotionally exhausted, which often means... I'm more relaxed. I'm moving more slowly. I'm under control and controlling the situation better than you are. So that no matter how hard you try, no matter how kinetic the situation becomes for you, I remain calm. I'm relaxed. I am straight-faced, showing no emotion. And it makes you wonder in the midst of the round, what do I have to do to rattle this guy? What do I have to do to get him to react? Why is he so calm? Why isn't he submitting me? Why is he letting me get in and out of different positions? Why isn't he breathing hard or sweating? Why is he showing no emotion? To me, that's the fun part of advancing in technique is you stop worrying about getting taps and start worrying more about the art and how you can express yourself through this art in such a way that people say, yeah, he's a handful, but not in a bad way. He just, he he can't be rattled. And it's kind of unnerving. Now that being said, to any of my young teammates listening to this, uh, you know better than I do that you are younger, faster, stronger, and more athletic than I am. And so often I may appear calm on the surface, but on the interior, (laughs) My Again, my armor may display this cold exterior, this relaxed, having fun exterior, but on the interior, I'm saying to myself, don't let them see, don't let them see, don't let them see. Because when you train with people half your age in this example, it's hard. It really is. Because they seem to have endless amounts of energy and they can do things with their body that I just can't do anymore. Probably never could actually. And so I have to adopt a different style, a different approach to my art than they do because I lack their physical tools and abilities. So what I lack in physicality, I have to make up for mentally and emotionally, spiritually. I don't really have a choice if I want to continue to train with people that are sometimes three times younger than I am. I have to adapt the rules to my game, to my art. And in adapting those rules... I do create additional problems for myself and also other things that I change do not add problems. That's a part of learning any art, especially if you follow Musashi and you are diligent and disciplined and constantly engaged in learning. And so when it comes to men, you have to learn what's in the heart of each man, whether it's the people under your command your students, your friends and family members, what is it that motivates them? What are their goals? What is the purpose of what they do? What are their hopes? What are their fears? And how can I use those in a constructive and productive way to bring about the best result for them in the pursuit of their art or in the pursuit of their goals? Because of course, when people engage with you in this way, it is easy to take all of that and use it in an exploitative manner, to prey upon them, to exploit them. We know those teachers. We know those bosses, those leaders. They dominate our political system on every level at this point. They understand us, they understand our heart, they understand the inner workings of our minds but they use it to exploit and hurt us and to take advantage of us. And so once we learn these things, we learn the spiritual side of things. Hopefully then we're engaged with a higher level of reality. We're thinking more deeply, not just about the technical side of things, but about the purpose and the goal and the motive and the intent of the thing. And so to wrap this up, <clears throat> excuse me, the supervisor of a job should circulate among his men to appraise their strengths and weaknesses. He must praise them where they earn praise and admonish them when they do not fulfill the requirements of the job. But we, well, he must praise and admonish equally or there will be a loss of morale and the job may not be finished correctly. Likewise, a commander must walk among his men if he is to expect a certain level of performance. If he is unaware of the skills of each warrior, how can he know to whom to assign tasks? tasks. The commander must praise and admonish in the same manner. This is a virtue strategy. Why would a commander want a spearman to join the line of archers? Even if there is tremendous spirit on the part of the spearman, with no experience with the bow, his best efforts can only be mediocre. And isn't that the truth in anything? If we expect our children when they are 8, 9, 10 years old, to drive the car for us. We should not expect success. Do their feet reach the pedals? Can they see over the dashboard? Are they mature enough to take on the responsibility of driving on the roads? Likewise, when your teenager starts to drive, do not expect them to drive as if they have 30 years of experience. Give them some grace. But at the same time, if someone is experienced, let's say, in driving, to use this analogy, that does not then mean that they are prepared to get on the track at NASCAR. That is a different set of skills and abilities. Yes, the raw materials are the same. You're a driver. That race car driver is a driver. They both go home at the end of the day in their cars. But when they step on the track and they put on their suit and their helmet and everything, they are not driving down to Target to pick up some groceries. They are doing something that would, to the untrained person, tear us apart from stress and just the physical rigor that is engaged with in that process of driving on a track and racing against other drivers. And so we must know our people. We must know who we are talking with. We must know who our students are. We must know the capabilities and the deficiencies of each one of our family members. But it starts first and foremost, as Musashi says, with understanding ourselves. If we do not understand ourselves, our strengths, our weaknesses, our virtues, our sin, If we don't understand why we are afraid of certain things and certain people, if we don't understand where our hope comes from, how can we hope then to influence others? How can we be in command of others when we cannot even command ourselves? If you cannot stop eating to excess, how can you teach others about health? If you as a preacher are engaged in activities, that cause spiritual harm and damage to your pulpit or to the office of the ministry, how can you hope to pastor your congregation? If you as a teacher do not care about the well-being of your students, how can you be an effective teacher? All of these things start, for Musashi, with the self. These are not questions you ask others to answer for you These are questions that only you can answer for yourself, and it comes through the performance of the art, through the doing, through the discipline and the passion and the fear and the hope that accompany the pursuit of any art. And through failing, you learn. And you use those failings not as weaknesses that debilitate you and throw you off the path and cause you to quit. Instead, you use them to drive you through the problem. And like I said at the beginning, perhaps you have to go around the problem, over it, under it. You have to ask for help to move the problem. But if we don't allow the question to defeat us, if we don't allow temporary failure to determine the path of our entire life, then there is no such thing ultimately as failure. There is only failure right now, failure to execute correctly. But that does not mean then that that is permanent. Or, alternatively, you do discover through multiple failures that this is not the path that you should be on. You do not have the ability. You thought you did. You thought maybe you could learn it along the way, but it turns out you do not have a proclivity for this that is acceptable. How many times do we try something in life only to discover three months, six months, three years later, I'm not getting better at this. This is not working out. I thought it would. We stuck with it, but it's not getting better. Maybe it's time to take a different path. That's okay. So long as you acknowledge, I first have to go and I have to deal with me and I have to dig deep into myself and ask these questions of motive and intent and purpose and goal. And then we can come back together, we can sit down, and we can discuss. When we started, this was our definition, definition of success. We agreed upon this. What is your definition of success now? How do you define sobriety now? What does happiness and gratitude mean to you now? And you discover it's changed. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And so you adapt. And you recognize, I failed in this arena, but that doesn't mean then that I'm a failure, that I am a failure and I'm never going to succeed at anything. Instead, you recognize, okay, I failed at the first business I tried. There were so many things I can think of that caused me to fail. Some within my control, some that were out of my control. And so I'm going to go into business again. And maybe you fail two, three, four times. Ulysses S. Grant failed at like 15 or 17 different businesses. He ended up being the president. I would argue he was a tremendous failure at presidency too, but he seemed to fail up. So it fits within my analogy. (laughs) But that's what I mean is that others may see you as a classic failure. Maybe you are the person in your family who's always into something new every time you see family at holidays. And so they're always saying, oh, what new thing are you into this time? And maybe you have a closet full of kayak paddles and yoga mats and popcorn poppers and knitting devices, a loom in your garage that doesn't make you a failure because you tried something and it didn't work. It wasn't your thing. You didn't have a proclivity for it. It interested you. Maybe you didn't ask yourself, do I have a passion for this? Or is this something of a distraction? Or I'm excited about it because others are, and I value their opinion and I value them. So they seem to love doing it. So I'll do it. That's acceptable. But then don't be surprised in three months or so when you lose your passion for it. Because it didn't come from you, it came from others. Everything we do for Musashi must start with ourselves and asking ourselves the question of purpose and goal. And then, as I've noted, and as he says too, you adapt as you go. And there are going to be times, maybe long stretches, when everything feels like you're in the valley and there are no hilltops, no mountain peaks. Those are rare. Because the longer you do something and the better you get at it, the more you are going to focus down into the macro details and then the micro details of the thing. So you're looking at the big picture and the small picture and the big picture and the small picture. Because you're constantly stepping back to get a better perspective, and then diving back in to refine your art. And the better you get at something, the more particular those refinements become, the more the details stand out to you that no one else can see. And we have to be aware of that, that the longer we do something and the more capable we become at that art, we will see things that other people do not see because we have committed our lives to this thing. And so don't get frustrated when other people don't appreciate the art the way that you do, or they don't see in it what you do, or they don't appreciate you and your work and the time and the energy and the attention that you have poured into the art. They can't see it because they have not done that. They're not traveling with you. In this particular area on this path, they're still back on the starting line. And that's not their fault. They're not on this path. You are. And the further along the path you go, the less people you will meet. That's the way it works. You think of all the things you started and stopped. Well, everybody does that to a certain degree. Most people just... Go, as I've said in the past, they just go from flower to flower like a pollinating bee, never settling down on any one thing. So it is rare nowadays, especially. It was rare in Musashi's day, which is why we still have the Book of Five Rings. It's rare for someone to say, I'm going to dedicate my entire life to this one thing. This is why, now that I'm thinking about it, this is why Japanese culture fascinates me. You watch Jiro Dreams of Sushi, for example, my favorite documentary period. This man committed his entire life, literally every waking moment of his life to one thing, sushi. And he is the best at it. And the story that this documentary tells, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, it's on Netflix. It is fascinating. And I have so much respect for someone who can do that because I would love to be able to do that, but I'm not wired that way. In a certain sense, I am a bumblebee. I love new things and I love learning new things and I love trying new things and I love meeting new people. I love that. Long-term, I'm not good. I'm just not. I made a comment two weeks ago during announcements after church. This is my 16th year at my congregation. I've never done anything in my life for 16 years except be married for 25. That's it. That's the only thing that I've ever done in my life That has been consistent. Well, I guess being a father, that counts too, right? That's it. My family, my wife and my children are the only thing in my life that I can say that I have been consistently showing up for them and dedicating myself to being a better husband and a better father every day and failing upward every day as a consequence. So being in a congregation for 16 years, I never lived anywhere longer than four years when I was growing up. Consistency is not normal for me. So, reading Musashi is just as helpful for me, if not more helpful, than it is for you, because I am being taught by a master to reflect and assess myself and why. I'm a great short term friend, but I'm not a good long term friend. Why is that? I'm really great in short bursts, but As far as sticking with something, why am I constantly changing my focus? What is that? It's not ADD, that's bullshit. The person that invented and defined ADD and ADHD admitted at the end of his life, he just made that up to get funding and to continue getting grant money. This is why it it annoys me to no end that the psychological community continues to use this crutch to enrich themselves when it's a published known fact that it's a false diagnosis But that being said, we can recognize then that what I'm doing is not being a flake. I'm not being a bumblebee, but rather I'm saying, well, I'm interested in that. So I'm going to go try that for a while and I'm going to see if I have the proclivity for it. And if I do, I'll stick with it. And if I don't, okay, I've got a little bit of knowledge about that. And now I'm going to move on to the next thing. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that actually makes you a more well-rounded and a more enriched person and a better conversation partner, to be blunt, because you can talk about a lot of things and maybe it's facile. Maybe it's just surface level stuff, but we can still talk about it. We can still enjoy our our time together, enjoy each other's company and have a, a not so profound, not so deep conversation with each other. It's okay to do that once in a while but just recognize then I committed myself to this for three months, a year, five years. And so that is the breadth of my knowledge and my experience in this area. So don't pretend to be a master. Instead, look at where you have applied yourself, asserted yourself to learning, and then say, okay, yeah, you know what? I have achieved a certain mastery over this particular discipline, but that doesn't mean That I'm done learning and done improving and done growing. I've been preaching for 15 years now. And when I teach young pastors about the art of preaching, they're deeply appreciative because they recognize I'm a master of my craft. And yet I'm never satisfied with the last sermon I preached, I'm never satisfied with the last podcast that I did. My cadence was too fast. I was clearing my throat too often. I don't like the audio production. I don't think the topic was as engaging as I had hoped it would be and on and on and on and on. That's entirely an interior conversation that I may share with you, but yet I have to have that conversation with myself because I'm never satisfied with the result of what I'm producing. In one way, it contributes to my chronic anxiety, which is a very real thing. But on the other hand, it's also what keeps me focused and sharp and hungry to keep going. Because I know there's always more to learn. There's always more to receive. And I think if, again, if that's a child, a child looks at the world and says, give me, give me more. They're this insatiable parasite on the world, but aren't we all in one sense? And I mean that positively. We should be insatiable. Look at all that God has created. Look at all that God has given to us to enjoy and to interface with and to ask questions of meaning and higher purpose and higher truth. There's so much that it's inexhaustible in the finite amount of time we're given. So be hungry to learn. Be hungry for new experiences. Be hungry for new adventures. That's what hope is built on. That's what motivates you to go out and have those adventures is hope. And take it easy on yourself when something doesn't work out the way you planned. You don't reach the goal. That's okay. Adapt, pivot, and go in a different direction. And when you find the thing that captures your heart, the thing that sets your spirit aflame, when you find that thing, you'll know. Intuitively, you will know. And it will become your thing. And maybe it's two things, or three, or four, or five. No matter how many things capture your atten- attention, Just recognize each one of these is demanding something from me my time, my attention, my energy. So, other things are going to need to be sacrificed as a consequence. Otherwise, don't do them, don't pursue them, because you'll end up frustrated. But instead, recognize if I'm going to study jujitsu and Muay Thai, I have to devote the same amount of time and attention and energy to both well, then something else is going to slip. Something else has to be let go of. Because I can't focus on these two things without letting go of something else. Right? Maybe you're a master baker, but you're a terrible chef. Or at the most mediocre, as Musashi says about the spearmen amongst archers. Yeah, you're a master baker and you're an all right chef. Why? Well, to be a master baker, sacrifices have to be made. So at the very outset, at the introduction ask yourself, am I willing to sacrifice what's necessary to pursue this art, to do what is necessary to become a master? I said eight and a half years ago, I was willing to break bones and suffer emotional and mental trauma to get my black belt in jujitsu. I said that having not yet broken any bones or suffered emotional or mental trauma, As a consequence of jujitsu, eight plus years later, I have broken many bones and suffered a lot of emotional and mental trauma as a consequence. And if you ask me, would I do it again? Of course I would, without hesitation. I just trained for the last five months with gut issues. I was throwing up in my mouth the whole time. Does anyone else care? No, nor should they. That's my burden to bear. I didn't have to do that, it was a choice. But I love jujitsu so much. I am so dedicated to the art of jujitsu and muay thai that I'm willing to throw up in my mouth for one to three hours so that I can do that art. Because nothing gives me more satisfaction, nothing gives me more hope and joy outside of my faith than jujitsu and muay thai. If you said I had to cut off my ring finger on one hand for one of the martial arts, I would give you both my ring fingers. Because I can't live without them. And you can listen to this and say, well, that's insane. For you, it is. Because it's not your passion. It's not your path. But I may look at what you're doing and look at what you say. I'd cut off my ring finger for this or for that person. And I would say, that's insane. Why would you do that for that person? They're not worth it. Yeah, to you. But you're not on the path. This is my path and this is their path and we're on it together. And from the outside, it may look crazy to you, but to me, it's everything. And so extend a little grace to those that you look at and say, I don't get it. That's okay. You're not meant to. It's not for you. And likewise, if you're on the same path, show some grace. We're all struggling. We're all trying to get to our goal. Let's help each other get there. Let's support each other. Let's encourage each other. Let's build up hope. Let's build up charity. Let's build up kindness. Because God knows, and you know, there's such a lack of it nowadays. There's so many people that are hopeless because they have no path. They have no goal. They have no motive. I heard a 24-year-old the other night say, I can't talk to women. It's not because of a mental illness or some sort of physical defect or or anything. He's just afraid to talk to women. He's afraid to talk to them. Period. <laughs> and he is hoping that the art that he is currently pursuing will give him the confidence then to walk up to a young woman and talk to her, not even ask her out on a date, just talk to her, just be friends. And so I can mock that and I can say how pathetic that is because it is, it's pitiful, but yet it's real for him. And the path that he's on is a path that I can participate in, in helping him walk. And when those obstacles arise, I can stand there and say, do you need help moving it? Do you need help overcoming it? Because I can do that for you. We can do that for each other every day. We can do this. Because again, the armor that we put on does not need to be a kind of panic room to shield us and ferret us away from the world so that we can't get hurt. That's not true. They'll find us eventually. Instead, that armor is there for when we need to fight. And there is no better fight than when you know who you are fighting for. If I know that my wife and children are behind me, you're going to have to kill me to stop me. Because I know that if I lay down and die, it's them that I'm letting down. It's them that I'm exposing to the danger. But if you ask me to die for your cause, good luck. That cause better involve my wife and children Otherwise, I am not down with your cause. Each of us has to find that. Each of us has to find that thing that we're passionate about, that we are more than willing to commit ourselves to every day, that we are willing to die for, so that when we do die, we can say, it's a good death because it was a good life. So get busy living and don't worry about death. Death comes for us all. It's inevitable, but death doesn't have to be the end. It doesn't even have to be the beginning. It's just one part of a bigger story that we are all a part of. It's part of a higher truth and a higher reality that I think we all need to pay greater attention to every day. So don't worry about death. When it's ready to come and claim you, it will. And you have no control over that. But living, that's where all the fun is. So get out there and get busy living and be a child, be childlike in the way in which you interface with reality. Not childish, childlike. Read poetry, draw pictures, paint, sculpt, cook, bake, garden. Do things for the simple joy that you're alive and you get to do them. And I think with that, I'll stop. So thank you everyone for listening. I hope this was helpful. I hope that, again, this got you to think, and I hope ultimately it is for the good for whatever you choose to do and whoever you choose to do it with. So that being said, I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.